Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Leg warmers, acid wash jeans, new Coke. The 80s gave us a lot of new creation. But there were also some incredibly groundbreaking innovations that you may not realize come from this decade. This included advanced medical breakthroughs, astounding new technology, drastic changes to how we fought crime, and inventions that made our lives much easier and more entertaining. And they all came from the 80s. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consumed, and connected. And on today's journey, I take you back to an era of mind-blowing innovations. This is... 10 inventions you probably didn't know came from the 80s. How do you envision the 80s? Do you see it as a time of pop culture explosion with the launch of new movies, TV shows, cartoons, and music? Do you view it aesthetically, including changes to the way we dressed? Or do you see it as a time of economic prosperity and the rise of Wall Street and yuppie culture? Or when you think of the 80s, do all the incredible innovations come to mind? We were now in an era where technology was starting to catch up with our dreaming. Things that seemed impossible just a few decades prior could now become a reality. Not only did these new innovations make our lives easier, but they were also advancing us as a species. They created new possibilities and even provided hope. We start with an astounding medical breakthrough. Work on a total artificial heart, or TAH, goes all the way back to the 1940s. But the first use of an artificial heart took place on December 2nd, 1982. The artificial heart was created by a man named Dr. Robert Jarvik, who created it at the University of Utah. But this was still a team effort, and it was Dr. Willem Kolf that was important in the process. Kolf led the team, that included Jarvik, that was working on the artificial heart. The idea with the artificial heart was that it would just be a temporary fix while people waited for a real heart transplant. The artificial heart would be dubbed the Jarvik 7. The name would eventually be changed to the CardioS Total Artificial Heart. The first person to receive an artificial heart was Barney Clark from Seattle. Clark was a dentist who actually volunteered to try out this new experimental surgery. The first surgery was a success, and the Jarvik 7 would now be used far and wide as the temporary placeholder for those waiting for a real heart. Today, a person can live for months and even years with an artificial heart while they wait for a transplant. Next is the invention that changed the way we consume music. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. (laughs) 
Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. These were the words that started off the very first broadcast of MTV, and the future of pop culture would be changed forever. MTV debuted on August 1st, 1981, and the very first music video played was Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. Music and pop culture were now forever changed. For the first time, bands and artists really had to think about the way they presented themselves visually. Before MTV, you just had to worry about tours and album sales. But now, there was this whole new visual medium. This was tough for some artists who were not exactly, shall we say, visually appealing. But what this new format did work for were British artists. And it created a second British invasion. Artists in the UK had been presenting themselves on video for years thanks to shows like Top of the Pops. They knew the importance of appearance and production values to display their music. The bands and artists of the 80s from the UK grew up watching shows like Top of the Pops, so when MTV launched, they were ready. Bands like Duran Duran, Culture Club, and Spandu Ballet were off and running when MTV launched, but everyone else would soon catch up. The new video jockeys or VJs became celebrities in their own rights, and MTV would be required viewing for anyone who was young or claimed to be young. I have a previous episode all about the history of this groundbreaking channel in my previous episodes if you want to go back and check that out. Next, we have a simple creation, but one that you have probably had before. Chicken McNuggets. Have you tried McDonald's newest one-of-a-kind? They're great. No bones. I love it. I dug it. Ooh, new chicken McNuggets. McNuggets? McNuggets! A McNugget is a boneless chunk of tender, tasty chicken with four kinds of sauce to choose especially for dipping. Barbecue, hot mustard, sweet and sour. Honey, too. Because you deserve a break today. With chicken cook McDonald's way. Chicken McNuggets. McNuggets! Only at McDonald's. Yeah! You may think Chicken McNuggets go back to the late 60s or early 70s, but they are a 1980s creation. They also have an interesting story, as they went on to become one of the most famous fast food items of all time. The idea for bite-sized chicken came about from a McDonald's food supplier. This supplier was the man behind the frozen burgers they used, and he thought they needed some sort of chicken option, but one without bones and was small enough to be only a bite or two. McDonald's actually wanted to make a decent food item with this one, and they turned to a world-renowned chef named René Arand. Arand would design the Chicken McNuggets, and he had a pretty good pedigree as he had cooked for celebrities and royalty. He had said though that Chicken McNuggets were his greatest creation as they would be around long after he was gone. They were designed in a tempura batter, and Arand also spent time creating hundreds of sauce options before landing on the original three, hot mustard, barbecue, and sweet and sour. And did you know they actually come in four different shapes? You may not have noticed this, but the McNuggets are shaped in a bell, a bow, a boot, and a ball. The idea behind these specific shapes is that it allowed them to cook evenly and lend themselves well to dipping. And we loved them. It didn't matter your age, Chicken McNuggets were great. And these small bite-sized creations may have played a big role in taking McDonald's to the next level. It seems weird to think, but McDonald's was not always the fast food juggernaut we've come to know. There was a period when they were definitely not the industry leader. 
Going into the 70s, they were actually neck and neck with a fast food company called Rax, which was trying to be fast food for adults. And yes, I have an episode all about Rax, which you may really love. But going into the 80s, more competition was springing up. And it was two inventions that may have helped take McDonald's to the next level. The Happy Meal, which was released in 1979, and Chicken McNuggets, which would become the perfect Happy Meal item. Chicken McNuggets started with a trial launch in 1981 and were fully launched nationwide in the US in 1983. Here in Canada, Chicken McNuggets didn't launch until 1984, but the demand was so great, Canadian suppliers couldn't cover it and they had to start importing chicken from the US. But this incredibly popular new food item seemed to help in the continuing growth of McDonald's. In 1976, they had 3,853 restaurants in North America. By 1985, barely two years after Chicken McNuggets launched, there were now nearly 9,000 restaurants in 41 countries. In 1985 alone, they opened a record 597 new locations. The boneless hit that was an immediate success when launched in the 80s continues to be a staple item at McDonald's and, along with fries and the Big Mac, Chicken McNuggets drive nearly 60% of McDonald's sales throughout the year. Next, we have another invention from the 1980s that I thought was created earlier. And like many other inventions, its discovery was an accident. DNA fingerprinting came about in 1984 by a geneticist at the University of Leicester in England. Professor Alec Jeffries, now Sir Alec Jeffries, had been studying hereditary family diseases when he discovered that there were repetitive patterns of DNA in humans. He continued to research this and found that there were variations between a person's DNA. Unless the person had an identical twin, the variations in human DNA could be used to identify a specific individual. Jeffries called this new discovery genetic fingerprinting. But what would be the application for this new technology? Jeffries thought it may work well with identification, but no one shared this viewpoint. But soon, a whole new possibility would present itself. Not long after Jeffries created genetic fingerprinting, two murders took place right near the university. And it didn't take long to put this new invention into action. Months of investigation were going nowhere, and police had drawn a blank. But now, there was a new technique that would change crime fighting forever. No one had ever attempted a real-life DNA crime scene analysis before, but genetic fingerprinting was then tested to try to identify the killer. Initially, there were two suspects, and for the first time ever, genetic fingerprinting was able to exonerate the primary suspect and identify the real killer. Colin Pitchfork was identified as the murderer and sentenced to life in prison, the first person in history to be convicted on the basis of DNA evidence. Back in 1984, Jeffries had no idea how far-reaching and important his discovery would be. Jeffries said that if you had told him back then that this would become the major tool for solving crimes and has put millions of criminals behind bars, he would have laughed at you. The work of Sir Alec Jeffries back in 1984 changed worldwide policing forever. Depending on how old you are, you may have to ask your parents what a disposable camera was. 
I'm not sure if kids today have even used a regular digital camera, but trust me, for a kid in the 80s, a disposable camera was pretty mind-blowing. These were the days when there was a lot of anxiety about taking pictures. If you are younger and have only ever used a digital camera or a phone to take pictures, this may be hard to wrap your head around, but before those devices became common, you had no idea what your shot looked like. You had to point and click and then basically hope for the best. Today, of course, our phones are portable photography studios. But before all this, the anticipation only built as you waited to get your physical print pictures back from the developer. The disposable camera came out a bit later than I realized. It was around 1987. Photography leader Kodak introduced a 24-shot disposable camera called the Fling. No one realized that there was a huge market for this, and after Kodak paved the way, many other companies jumped on board. This is similar to how Kodak actually invented the digital camera, ultimately leading to their own downfall. The Fling cost $6.95 when it was first released, and converted for today, that's around $16. Not too bad, honestly. If a unique product like this was released today, I could see it selling for a lot more. The incredible success of the disposable camera caused Kodak sales to rise from $3 million in 1988 to $21.5 million in 1992. And it didn't take long for others to throw their hat in the ring, as very quickly, a battle emerged between Kodak and Fuji. The two companies would go head-to-head -head in the golden age of disposable cameras. Fuji had apparently been planning to release a disposable camera before Kodak, and they introduced one in Japan in 1986. They planned to release it in North America in early 87, but Kodak beat them to the punch, announcing they were releasing a disposable camera before Fuji got the chance. Fuji had the Quick Snap, and Kodak had the Fling. Then, Fuji introduced the Quick Snap with a flash. Industry analysts thought no one would want a camera you throw away, but it turns out we did. In 1989, Kodak upped the ante and introduced the Weekend, a waterproof camera that could take underwater photos as deep as 12 feet. The battle between Kodak and Fuji over disposable cameras alerted other companies that disposable cameras were here to stay. At first, in 1987, just 3.3% of American households had used disposable cameras. Five years later, that number rose to 20%. By the end of the 80s, they were everywhere. Sales of disposable cameras hit the 3 million number mark in 1988, and then they tripled to 9 million going into 1990. The disposable camera was a truly innovative idea. They had a low barrier of entry as you didn't have to be a camera expert. They could be used by anyone, and they were also cheap enough that they could be considered an impulse buy. Coming up next, an electronics invention that took a beloved home console, shrunk it down, and allowed us to take it on the go. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Now we have the invention that changed the world of video games forever. They said it wasn't humanly possible. All the power and excitement of Nintendo right in the palm of your hand. Introducing Game Boy. It's portable, it's in stereo, and its games are interchangeable. Game Boy comes complete with batteries and the outrageous new game, Tetris. And for head-to-head competition, use Video Link and blow your opponent away. Game Boy, only from Nintendo. Now you're playing with power, portable power. Created in 1989, it's hard to distinguish if the Game Boy is a toy or a video game. Ultimately, it's probably a bit of both. We've had portable video games before, but the Game Boy was like taking your NES everywhere you went. The NES changed the landscape of video games forever, and they struck while the iron was hot in 1989. Even though it was black and white, we didn't seem to mind. The big feature that came with it was the familiar Nintendo control pad built right into the Game Boy. There was no learning curve to this device. It was like you just picked up where you left off with an NES. It was instantly familiar. One big thing that helped launch the Game Boy into the stratosphere was the inclusion of the incredibly successful and addictive Tetris. This drove that early success of this new handheld console. The Game Boy first came out in Japan in April 1989, before being released in North America in July of that same year. The Game Boy would sell 40,000 units on its first day, and it was off and running to be the hottest selling toy of Christmas and the entire year. As of July 2022, some 118 million units have been sold worldwide. This puts it third all-time for best-selling console, beating out brands like the original PlayStation, the Nintendo Switch, every edition of the Xbox, and even the original NES. Speaking of technology, next we have the personal computer. And personal computing was starting to emerge in the 1970s, but it really didn't enter average homes until the 80s. The big reason for this was they started to shrink it in size and you didn't need an entire room of your house devoted to holding it. They also had some more computing power and were starting to relatively come down in price. Computers had been for hobbyists, but many people were starting to see their everyday applications. Not to mention all the video games that were now available on them. IBM really helped pave the way for the personal computer in 1981. The IBM 5150 PC had an Intel 8088 processor and ran version 1.0 of the PC-DOS operating system. This really was the basis for what future PCs would become. When it was released, the 5150 sold for $1,565, which converted for today is around $4,500. But also in 1981, Engineers at MOS Technology decided they needed a new chip project to work on. 
Their goal was to produce a state-of-the-art home video game, but that market was slowing down a little. A market they may have helped eventually crush, but we'll get to that in a second. Instead of risking things with video games, the engineers were tasked with creating a 64 kilobyte home computer. This would become the iconic Commodore 64. The Commodore 64 was a legitimate game changer when it was released in August 1982. It was easier to program, it used a simple cartridge system, and had a monitor that seemed more engaging. The Commodore 64 also had graphic capabilities that other computers just couldn't touch. I have so many fond memories of playing Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego for the Commodore 64 at a friend's house. And then desperately wanting to play the infamous Leisure Suit Larry. Yes, I have a previous show all about that too if you want to go back and check it out. But probably most importantly, when it came to the Commodore 64, it was cheaper. The original estimated retail price was under 600 or about 1800 when adjusted for inflation. Not super cheap, but a hell of a lot better than the 1600 at the time for an IBM. The Commodore 64 was the first computer company to make a billion dollars in sales, and it's considered the world's all-time best-selling computer. It has even appeared in the Guinness Book of World Records as selling 30 million units. Insiders say this may be more in the 17 to 20 million unit mark, but either way, in large part because of the Commodore 64, the home computer had truly arrived. And I mentioned how the PC was also seen as taking a big bite out of the home video game market. I've covered this more in depth in my episodes about Nintendo and Atari if you want to go back and listen to those, but going into the early 80s, Atari ruled the roost. But now, the home PC is catching on. One of the big appeals is you not only had a home computer that could perform many functions, but they also played video games. For many people, it just made sense to buy the machine that could do it all, especially the Commodore 64. The video game market crashed in 1983, and although there are many factors involved with this crash, the emergence of the home computer is seen as one of them. And then, everything would change again in 1984. Seven years prior, Apple released the Apple II. It was a huge hit, but the company would cause a seismic shift in 1984 with the release of the iconic Macintosh. The Macintosh, or Mac, brought Apple again to the forefront, but it was the way they presented it that caused much of the seismic shift, as Apple would also forever change advertising and the Super Bowl with one of the most groundbreaking commercials in history. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification victims. We have created for the first time in all history a garden of pure ideology where each worker may bloom secure from the pests of a computer will introduce Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984.
Next, we have the invention that combined technology, pop culture, and personalization. The Walkman was such a unique creation because it created another of those pop culture seismic shifts. This was more than just a consumer good. For the first time, people could take their personal music on the go. The listening experience just became much more personal. There had been portable transistor radios, but you were limited to whatever it was the stations were playing. With the Walkman, you now had complete control over what you listened to, and your music collection went wherever you did. This would pave the way for the Discman, and then the MP3 players of the future, including the iPod, and then the iPhone. But it all started with the Walkman. The Walkman came about because the then president of Sony wanted to be able to listen to his music while traveling. He only had a big TCD5 cassette recorder to take with him, and that wasn't cutting it. He requested that a smaller device be created to be primarily used for playback. The first version they came up with was called the Pressman. It wasn't great, but it put in motion what would become the first Walkman. It wasn't called the Walkman just yet, but was classified as the TPS-L2. In June 1980, the TPS-L2 was going to be launched in America, but it needed a new name. They went back to that original Pressman idea, but swapped in the verb walk as a way to describe what it was for. An effective marketing campaign touted the new device for its individual benefits, and when it was launched, Sony hoped to sell around 5,000 units a month. They sold 50,000 in its first two months. The Walkman was an incredibly unique device in that it was marketing to the masses, but was essentially a personalized device. Your music tastes were unique to you, and the Walkman delivered your music in any setting you were in. The Walkman is also seen as playing a big part in the fitness craze of the 1980s as now more people were motivated to take up walking or jogging knowing their music could go with them. I also have a full episode all about the history of this iconic device if you want to go back and check that out in my previous episodes. The name Dynatac 8000X might not mean anything to you, but you've probably seen this before. This is considered the first true commercial mobile phone. When we think of the 1980s, we picture those giant Zach Morris or Gordon Gecko cell phones that look like they needed a car battery to power them. This was the Motorola Dynatac 8000X. It's the poster child for the earliest mobile phones. And it was a giant brick and became the most famous of the early handsets. When it came out in 1983, the 8000X cost an eye-watering $4,000. Converted for today, that's over 12 grand. Yikes. The concept of a mobile phone seemed like a gimmick and only for the rich, but the Dynatac was really amazing technology. We already had car phones, but with these new mobile phones, you could actually make and receive calls in public without being attached to anything. Design for the cell phone goes all the way back to the early 70s when Motorola began working on a prototype that was created in just three months, but it wasn't close to ready. Ten years and a hundred million dollar investment later, it was finally released to the public in September 1983. 
Those who think getting a car phone is not for them, whatever the reason, haven't kept up with the booming industry of cellular radio telephones. Scenes like this are becoming commonplace in U.S. cities where cellular is available today. This revolution in communications could make it possible for more and more people to have a phone in their car, or even one that travels with you. Like this unique cellular portable made by Motorola, which weighs only 30 ounces. So why a 10-year gap and a $100 million investment? Well, there was no cellular network to speak of, and the cellular infrastructure needed to be created. If you've ever complained about your battery life on your phone like I do every day, you may find comfort in the fact that Dynatac 8000X had a battery life of only 35 minutes, and it took 10 hours to charge. But the portability of the mobile phone meant freedom, and in a decade that seemed more go, go, go than ever, the idea of the mobile communication was definitely intriguing, especially in the fast-paced world of business and Wall Street. With the Dynatac 8000X, we were getting into futuristic inventions that people decades prior could only dream about. The first mobile phones were, of course, not accessible to everyone, but they set the stage in creating a revolution that now, for better or for worse, is central to our modern existence. It would still be a long time until mobile phones became a standard item in our lives, and you may be listening to this episode on one right now, but the 8000X was the OG to all of them. And lastly, if the space shuttle was released today, it would still seem groundbreaking and like something from the future. A plane that you could fly in space was something from science fiction, but it happened in the 1980s. The space shuttle doesn't just go back to the 80s, but the early part of the decade. The first space shuttle launched on April 12, 1981, when the Columbia made its maiden voyage. This was also 20 years to the day when Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. John Young and Bob Crippen would be the first people to fly the space shuttle, which has its roots going all the way back to the late 1960s. The space shuttle needed to be a solution to a problem. How do you make spaceflight more affordable and make spacecrafts reusable? The first shuttle, the Enterprise, was constructed back in 1976, but didn't have any orbital capabilities. It would just be used for approach and landing tests, and work would continue on a true craft that could fly in space. The STS-1, or Space Transportation System-1, better known as the Columbia, was completed and then launched for the very first time in April 1982 when it orbited the Earth 37 times, returning on April 14th. The space shuttle was 122 feet long, or 37 meters, with a 78-foot wingspan. When launched, two solid rocket boosters would drop off into the ocean to be reused later. Then, the external tank, which the shuttle rode on, provided fuel before it, too, dropped off into the ocean, leaving the shuttle on its own. The amazing thing about the space shuttle was not only could it be used in space, but it could also fly back, land, and be used again. The world's first reusable spacecraft had been created. This was again more science fiction stuff that was happening in our world. With the space shuttle, it felt like we were one step closer to the Jetsons. But the space shuttle was more than a space plane. This was a functioning laboratory that would be used while in orbit. 
astronauts, scientists, and researchers could now conduct experiments while orbiting the Earth. The space shuttle was also important for providing maintenance in space and transporting important payloads. It launched the Hubble Space Telescope and the Galileo. The space shuttle essentially helped us to build a space station as well. Six different space shuttles would be built, and they flew 135 missions until the last launch on July 8, 2011. The space shuttle program has, of course, been fraught with tragedy, but the image of the space shuttle remains a defining image for the entire 1980s and one of the crowning achievements of human engineering. The space shuttle was one of the most remarkable creations in human history and an astonishing reminder of what people are truly capable of. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you heard, you now know there's plenty more where this came from with the previous episodes I recommended throughout. So definitely go back and check out my earlier shows. And if you really like the show, why not subscribe? Then you get them automatically downloaded each time I release a new one. And while you're doing this, you can also do me a solid and hook me up with a five-star rating and review. This helps the show and also allows other people to find these great topics that we all love. And if you're in a position to support the show, you can consider becoming a part of Patreon.com. That's a platform to not only support, but to get access to bonus audio content, including things like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. If you want to learn more, you can go to Patreon.com slash 80s. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80S. Or in the description for the show, there should be a link to take you right there. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. Hold up. 